episode three on the Photon Podcast, Man Pack Radios, Mill Serp Pack Radios, their operation, a buyer's guide. It's a crash course in Man Pack Radio coming up. AmateurRadio15.com presents Photime, the other ham radio podcast, sponsored by Main Trading Company. Find them online at mtcradio.com. Now, here's your host, Kale Nelson, K4CDN. Thanks for tuning in to the Photime Podcast. This is Episode 3. Appreciate you guys listening, subscribing, downloading the episodes, and being a part of what we got going on around here. Hey, I've got a couple of calls coming up in just a moment or two regarding why some of our listeners got their ham radio license. First, a big shout out to my friends in Paris, Texas, Maine Trading Company, mtcradio.com. They are the official Photime podcast sponsors. Make sure you check them out for any ham radio needs you have. New gear, used gear, they've got everything you need and more. Check them out, mtcradio.com. I am Kel, your host, K4CDN. And on this episode, we have, like I said, a couple of calls from some folks. We also have an interview with a gentleman from the wilds of Colorado. Harlequin's going to teach us all about man pack radios, mill cert pack radios, their operation. It's pretty much just a crash course in man pack gear. Let's first take this call and we'll get on with the interview. Stand by. Why did I become a ham operator or amateur radio operator? Well, I was into CB radios back in the very early 70s before they became the craze and were taken over back in the time when you had to have a license to be on a CB radio. And I kind of got the radio bug then. It wasn't from my parents or neighbors. It was from a coworker I had when I was working as an automobile mechanic. Then, of course, when the big craze hit, I got out of CB radio. But a few years later, I got into commercial radio. Again, got a uh, third-class radio telephone, uh, tele- uh, radio and telephone operator's license to be in commercial radio as a uh, disc jockey. And I did that from the mid to late 70s until the uh, early 90s when uh, radio kind of changed and I decided to move on to another career and got out of commercial radio. But I still had the, the radio bug, the idea of this communications over the airwaves in me. And so I always was dabbling with the thoughts of getting into ham radio. I heard about that when I was in commercial radio quite a bit from some of the engineers that had ham radios. And actually, the way I finally got motivated into getting into ham radio, getting my license and getting the equipment, was sort of an emergency preparation in that I live very close to the coastline in Florida and therefore possibility of hurricanes and wanted to be able to have emergency communications. And that was sort of the motivator that got me to get my license and get involved. But it was really a motivation from born from years and years of being in radio in one way or another. So I guess you could say the final straw was the emergency communications, uh, but really it was a lifetime of uh, interest in radio and uh, how it operates and just in communications of that sort. Good luck to you. This is Kilowatt November 8 Golf. Thanks for the call. Hey, and if you're interested in being on the Photon Podcast, maybe sharing some of your experiences with us or something, check out the webpage, amateurradio15.com. There's a phone number there. Give it a call. Wait for the beep. Leave your answer to the question. I believe I'm going to change it up. Let's make it, what is your favorite mode of operation in amateur radio? All right, so check it out on the website. It's photime.com. Up next, we've got an interview with a gentleman from Colorado. His name's Harlequin. He knows a lot about man pack gear, mill cert packs, and more. Harlequin, thank you for joining us on the Photime Podcast. Uh, thanks very much, Dale. I'm happy to be here. Well, we appreciate you coming on and uh, going to share some some knowledge with us about uh, 
about some things, all things Man Pack here in just a few moments. But before we go any further, I got to ask you, uh, what what got you into ham radio, and why did you become a ham radio operator? What where where did that all begin years ago? Um, actually, it's ironic because um, it was actually a guy on a mountain with a radio. And uh, I was actually hiking to the top of the mountain, and, you know, they got up to the top, and there was this guy up there with uh, basically a fishing pole and a dipole on there and yakking away to somebody using that setup. And so, you know, I thought to myself, well, hell, that looks like fun. So, you know, I started doing some research and uh, got into it. So how long, how long ago did, it, uh, did all that happen? How long have you been an operator? Um, actually, oh, Lord, uh, maybe five years ago that was. Well, I was okay. Longer, okay. That, yeah, it was longer than five years ago, but I think I was licensed about five years ago. I got you. Um, we, we all have our favorite things about ham radio. Mine is I just like talking to people. Uh, my wife thinks I'm a, an idiot because I like coming up here to the shack and, and trying to talk to someone in another country or another, another state or whatnot. Uh, she says I could just sit in the house and talk to her which I enjoy doing that as well, but uh, I like the communication aspect, uh, meeting other folks on the air or whatnot. What is your favorite thing about being a ham radio operator? Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's very similar to, to your experience. I mean, I just like to, you know, talk to people and, you know, make combo, you know, just using the most minimal means possible from probably the weirdest places possible, I guess. So it's <laughs> it's a combination of that with you know, just being able to do it, you know, kind of anytime, anywhere. So, right. No wires needed except for antennas, right? Yeah, that's that's a big part of it for me, you know, because obviously, you know, people are always like, oh, I can just use my cell phone. And, you know, I think to myself, oh, yeah, you know, but there's a billion, multi-billion dollar, you know, network, you know, that's supporting that. Whereas, you know, the ham radio, you just need a little, you know, some, you know, feet of wire and you're on the air. It's the magic, the magic of ham radio. Yeah, it's that. So um, you, you like operating man pack, and um, th- there's there may be some listeners uh, because we're we're catering to uh, folks who are not licensed at this moment as well. Uh, maybe some new uh, new licensees who don't really understand or know what a man pack is. Can you give us a little bit of breakdown on when we're going to talk about a man pack exactly? What are we talking about, or at least in the same ball field of what we're trying to talk about here today? Um, sure. So, uh, in my mind, my definition of this, which may vary a little from other people's, is it's basically kind of an all-in-one box that is fairly easy to use for portable communication. So, it's basically going to be, you know, an integrated radio, transmitter, tuner, power supply, and, you know, I'll throw on there some sort of very easy-to-use integral, you know, antenna mount typically, you know, so you can just basically either use it on the move, you know, which some guys do in the pedestrian mobile world, and or um, just basically carry it somewhere, plop it on the ground, uh, screw in a whip antenna, and just go. So, I mean, you know, that integration and durability, I think, are really, you know, very important when making the choices about using a man-pack radio. So, you, you know, when I when I see guys operating man-pack or man-portable, uh, I'm always shocked. Or I, and I guess I shouldn't be because I've seen so many photographs now of, of it happening. But there they are in the middle of nowhere with their antenna established, and they've got this radio, and, and you're right, it's just flopped on the ground. It's not like they've they've uh, set up a picnic table for it or they have a, a portable stand or anything. It's there on the ground, and uh, that that's always struck me, how these guys, you know, you have these uh, expensive rigs that you've toted up in the who knows where into the hinterlands, and uh, there it lays on the ground. That That's always struck me pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's really a big part of, you know, like what a man pack is. It's it's designed, you know, like the military ones and most of the commercial ones are designed to be rugged so they can just be, you know, you flop it on the ground and either using the whip antenna or connect it up to a field expedient, you know, dipole or slant wire or something like that, and, you know, away you go. 
So, I mean, there, there are no picnic tables where I operate. You know, I mean, I frequently <laughs> drag these things up to, you know, 12,000, 13,000, 14,000 foot mountaintops. And, uh, yeah, there's nothing up there but some rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, can, can, can I, or can the average Joe listener, can they build a man pack radio? Is it, uh, is it something that's accessible to folks with limited electronic knowledge or maybe a new guy coming in who this, who's, who, who enjoys hiking and, uh, and seeing things that most folks don't see a lot? Uh, can, can they create something to tote with them in their backpack or in a, a different pack, uh, pretty easily or is this something that uh you're looking at five years minimal into the hobby before you're smart enough to do something like this um no i mean i I would say it's actually pretty straightforward because i mean electronically i mean at least if you're talking about building one out of you know ham radio components probably the hardest part actually is at least you know for me was trying to figure out you know the sort of best way to, you know, build an enclosure for it that would still be lightweight and durable. And, I mean, beyond that, I mean, I've got a thread on ARFCOM about an FT897 that I kind of modded for the purpose, but, uh, you know, basically I bolted on a L-shaped bracket for a, you know, whip antenna mount, and then um, I took some angle aluminum and basically built a box around the sort of lower part of the radio to kind of keep all the cabling and all of that sort of reasonable, you know, and so I could actually stand it up because that's one of the big problems with most of the rigs out there is you cannot stand one up, you know, vertically. So, but beyond that, I mean, really it's about being able to rig a, you know, power supply, a, you know, a tuner, you know, and all that. I think the, for example, the 897, I think is a, you know, sort of good place to start, but I've seen, um, I've actually built like uh, one out of an 817, um, and I've seen like KX3s and sort of little SIG cases and all manner of things. So I think it's absolutely something uh, your average ham can do. I, there isn't a whole lot of electronics knowledge needed. Maybe if you need to whip out a battery pack, you might need to do a little bit of soldering. But I don't right. think it's particularly difficult. So your uh, your con- commercial rig of choice currently is the uh, the Yazoo. Is it a FT897? Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, currently, the, the, the interesting thing about it is, I mean, it was more or less sort of designed that way, except they kind of dropped the ball, in my opinion, and just you can't really stand the thing up and there's no integrated antenna mount. And if, if, if it came with those, you know, features, I think it would have been an even better radio, but out of the box, you can, you know, it's got space or you can, you know, buy the ASU battery packs for it. If you, you know, don't want to homebrew, so there's some advantages to that and you can get a bolt on, you know, antenna tuner. So, you know, with, with nice integration there. So, I mean, it's almost ready to go. And, you know, all I really did was I took some, uh, you know, like I said, some angle aluminum, you know, so I, and, you know, cut it off to the right length of the hacksaw and drilled some holes so I could, you know, secure it to the, you know, to the frame. And that was pretty much all I did with it. I, I read recently that they're discontinuing the 897. I'm wondering if they're not going to integrate some of the things you're talking about into a future model, which is, of course, just complete speculation. But uh, I know it's been a very popular radio for the entire length of the run, and I would have to imagine that they're going to do something to continue something in that type of lineage. Uh, I would be probably one of the first guys to buy a new one if it uh, you know, had that and a few fancy features like IFDSP. So, yeah. Well, if they're listening, there's, there's, there's their first order. Oh, that's what he wants one. <laughs> So, uh, you know, on um, on the uh, the first episode of the show, and in the the second episode, we touched on it as well. But emergency communications, and mm-hmm. uh, folks putting, I've built a couple of boxes where some have batteries in them, some don't. Some are VHF, UHF only. Some are uh, HF only. Some, you know, we we build these boxes and, and make it easy to tote our stuff around. We call them incom boxes or go boxes. Uh, you, you're building. And, and carrying a man pack, which is along the same lines, but more streamlined, I guess the term to use would be. Uh, 
can you see benefits of one versus the other, or is that just user-dependent is the key there? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the way I've always kind of thought about it um, is that sort of the man pack is, is, is in a lot of ways a very, you know, sort of minimally defined kind of MCOM box, uh, you know, in terms of what it can do, but it's also very portable, you know, because I've seen some of these MCOM box designs that, you know, guys are using giant lead-acid batteries or, you know, you've got a separate, you know, ammo can with a bunch of batteries in it, and the weights on these things strike me as totally insane and impractical for, you know, any sort of backpacking use. I mean, I'm you know, weight, you know, weight if you're carrying something on your back or in addition to other gear, you know, like a, a, for a backpacking, you know, kind of trip radio, that that's a huge factor, and I mean, if your radio is weighing, you know, ten, fifteen pounds, I mean, that's a pretty considerable amount of weight to be carrying for, you know, a couple of days, or you know, even on a day hike if it's a tough one. So, you know, you know, some of these things in toolboxes or ammo cans, you know, it, it, it's good, but you know, it's not in my mind, it's not like man portable very far. Right. Right. In our first episode, we spoke with Cecil Higgins from the uh, Missouri Joplin, uh, Joplin, Missouri recovery effort with the Aries, and he he kept hitting on man portable, uh, field ready, field deployable gear that you could wear on your body to go out and and work in these recovery areas. And they were he, he was really stressing VHF UHF, but I would have mm-hmm. to assume that you could go either way with that. And uh, just like you, you built an, a uh, a man pack out of a uh, an HF rig. You could also make a lighter weight man pack. And this may be just ridiculous thinking. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But you could also make one out of a full power VHF UHF rig uh, to use in some sort of search and recovery. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Though, I mean, the one place where I would caution for using more power on VHF and UHF. Are so sort of is uh, the radiation exposure you're going to get from those antennas. Right. So that 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 would be you know kind of a big consideration. And also in those cases you wouldn't really need you know much of a tuner. You just cut your you know antenna to you know whatever band you're working on because the ham bands tend to be narrow enough you know at those frequencies. You know, and I also operate you know a fair amount of like ex-military VHF gear. So I mean that would be a total non-issue to build up something like that. You just need the rig, the battery, and, you know, some sort of nice way to integrate an antenna into it. We'll come back to that in just a couple of minutes, but i got to ask you, when you, when you get out to where you're going with your man pack, and, I mean, are you doing a, a two-hour hike? Or are you on a four-hour walk? Or generally, how far do you go? And then when you get there, what type of modes do you operate? Um, wow, that varies pretty widely. If I'm go if I'm going like mountain topping, um, I mean it just it's just the length of the hike. I mean it is what it is to get to the top of the mountain. Some of them are, you know, fairly short, but I wouldn't say I mean a few of them are less than two hours, more like uh two to three, maybe even four hours to get to, you know, the summit and then I operate for, you know, maybe an hour, and then I got to run back down the mountain before the lightning catches me. So uh, <laughs> typically I operate on voice, um, yeah, so just sideband typically. Um, but I have done a little bit of CW work, sort of depends if, you know, it's, it's mainly the backup plan if nobody can hear me on voice. Um, mm-hmm. And I do actually have setups to do data. Um, I've got a PSK31 app for a cell phone and sort of a interface that I can use with a bunch of different radios called uh, Wolfie Link. So, and that works real well. It's super lightweight. It's a bit clunky on the cell phone. We'll uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. I'll get that from you uh, when we when we put this up, so folks can can look that up. So you're using a an Android or an Apple um, smartphone to operate. Um, BSK, and um, almost like using um, Echolink with an internet connection, I guess. I have, I have not done that level of operating with them, um, because I generally think that that's more a VHF thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool. So let's uh, let's talk about 
let's talk about MILSERP, and you, you touched on that just a moment ago, uh, military surplus rigs versus a commercial rig. And uh, you, you pricked my interest with a, a military surplus VHF rig. That sounds very interesting. But tell us a little bit about, because I know that you dabble with, most, with both types there, um, tell us about uh, the comparisons of the two. Um, all right. I mean, it, it, it's sort of an interesting thing. Um, and when you say commercial, I mean, I, I guess I should let people know. I mean, you can buy, I mean, hardened, you know, man pack commercial radios. Um, actually, Yaesu used to have a pack called the VX1210, which is also discontinued. That was pretty much purpose-built for this sort of activity. Um, you know, it was a 20-watt sideband and a radio with a lithium battery. I think the whole setup is actually reasonably lightweight, seven, eight pounds with the battery. Um, I never owned one, but there's some folks on uh, the HF pack groups that uh, swear by them. So that's a fairly, you know, popular one. Also, Kodan and Daytron kind of make more commercial offerings. They tend to be fairly expensive if you buy new, but sometimes you can find them, you know, kind of on eBay or, you know, some other places that they, you know, make for the Red Cross or, you know, guys operating in Africa. Um, and they're, you know, really quite good rigs for, you know, this kind of work. Um, you know, I don't, I don't happen to own one, though, so usually they're fairly spendy. So, right. but for Melser, um it, it's sort of a weird market, actually, because it's not like you can, you know, just type up, you know, a website and just go, you know, have your choice of, you know, half a dozen, you know, old, you know, radios. Um, it's really, it, it, the market is just always variable as to what's available, what it costs, and, you know, eBay is often, you know, a source for these things. And, you know, sometimes the problem with eBay is you're going to buy, you know, a dead radio. And repairing mill packs is, I mean, sometimes doable, but, you know, often it's not like you're going to send it into the service center. So often you're either going to have to maybe find, hopefully find some old guy who used to work on these or you're stuck trying to fix it yourself. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's that's sort of part of that world. And, you know, the other half of that is the cooler, you know, historically the radio is, you know, there's collectors out there, so... You know, you're going to pay a premium for, you know, cool-sounding man packs or, you know, anything even remotely modern because, because of the, you know, all the radios um, now are considered, you know, like munitions by ITAR. It's um, kind of hard getting them. And so, you know, nations are just basically grinding it up. The U.S. has been doing it since the 90s under Clinton. So basically anything really you know, that wasn't surplus prior to 1990-whatever, you know, it's just going to be much rarer and much harder to find. So I was just going to, you know, kind of talk about a couple of different packs that are kind of available currently. Yeah. Please, go ahead. Uh, other countries aren't quite as crazy as the U.S. when it comes to military surplus gear. Um, some European countries, you can find, uh, you know, places there to buy man packs. So Britain, the PRC-320, like uh, the ARFCOM member Piccolo has, that's actually not a bad choice if, you, if you're looking for a, a sort of a cheaper way to get into the hobby because I think currently it's about the cheapest uh, Miltac radio you can get. Um, they typically sell for, I don't remember, maybe 300 pounds, which is more like four or $500, which is pretty reasonable. And you can also get actual accessories for them. All the ancillaries are actually available in, in, in large number over in the UK. Um, the only thing to really concern or to, to know if you're buying a radio from overseas is the shipping will, will be ridiculous. I mean, be prepared to spend 100 or $200 shipping the gear. Wow. So, yeah, and the UK is the worst because I, I, don't, I don't know why it is the worst, but it is the worst dealing with, like, Royal Mail. I mean, they just, it's gold-plated you know, shipping. <laughs> but you got, that's the PRC 320. That's kind of the a guy comes in, hears this, he's he's wanting a Millsurp radio. A PRC 320 is an excellent place for him to start uh, financially, as well as ease of use. Or is that um, may, may may not be the most ease of use rig? Um, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, most mill packs, I mean, were designed to be used by 
you know, soldiers, so they tend to not be terribly overcomplicated. Um, the 320, I mean, it's a pretty manual rig, um, so it's got a manual antenna tuner, meaning you got to tune and load it. You know, it kind of works like, a, you know, like your average sort of MFJ, you know, kind of tuner, something like that, manual tuner, so there, there's no ATU. Um, which can actually be a blessing with the 320 because it'll tune, you know, pretty much anything or, you know, you can usually get almost any antenna to work with it with a little fiddling. So manual ATUs are often better than the automatic versions of mill packs, which are mainly designed to only work with the whip antenna or maybe end-fed wires. It's sort of, it's it's very dependent on the, the pack and the design, um, how good the actual ATU is. But, I mean, the 320, if you think about it, first entered service in, like, the early 70s, you know, and, you know, it's, uh, it's one of the longest-serving man packs and uh, puts out 30 watts um, on USB. That's the only other thing you have to consider is that it's a USB-only man pack. Um, there's some mods, and you can actually get guys in the U.K. to modify them for LSB as well, usually with, like, a little switch or they'll replace one of the, like, positions on a you know, the selector switch, so they'll replace, like, CW-wide setting with, like, LSB or something like that. Um, so they can be modded for LSB, and I would recommend that for, for folks wanting a more, you know, sort of full-featured setup. Another pack that was also available until kind of recently, I haven't seen any on eBay in a while, um, was the PRC-174, which is uh, was actually a U.S. design originally. It was built by Tadrian. And uh, it actually kind of it was it was in a competition with the PRC 104, and it lost. But the Israelis picked it up, and several countries worldwide used them for many years. And uh, that's actually pretty good radio. Um, you know, USB, LSB, AM. You know, it does all the modes, does data. Um, yeah, the only sort of weird, funny thing with it is the the side antenna mount, which is. Uh, not real easy to, to find, but there's uh, there's guys who've managed to homebrew kind of adapters for it, uh, so you can you know use it with a whip easily. So, but the ATU on that is you know I mean for, as an example, it will not work with my G5 RV on most of the bands because it just cannot deal with like the complex impedance of that antenna, but it works just fine with you know a whip or a simple dipole. So. Huh. It's uh, the the simple confounds the wise in that case there. Well, and I mean, speaking of like easy to use, I mean, so the 174 actually takes it, you know, sort of, I think, too far in a way because um, so it's got a front mounted BNC port, right, for wire antennas and whatnot. The thing is, um, you have to basically take off the side antenna mount because there's a magnetic reed switch in there. So if you if, if the side antenna mount is on it, you know, it's always going to, you know, take the, you know, signal from that. And then you have to take that off, which it depends on. I mean, the original antenna mount's not too bad to do that with the, the sort of homebrew adapters because um, I have both uh, for mine because it took me probably two years to find the original antenna mount. Um you know, so I had the homebrew one for quite a while. And, I mean, it's it's a nice design and whatnot, but it used sort of Allen screws to, you know, bolt to the side of the radio. So it was kind of, you know, it would take a little while to get it off, you know, when I got home. Um, you know, the, the original uses kind of these big old thumb screws. So, you know, it's a lot uh, easier to get one off. So, but... Yeah, I mean it's 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 sort of like small quirky things with with the mill packs, you know. So each one's going to be a little different. Each one's going to have its quirks, um, you know, that you're just going to have to, you know, as an operator, you know, learn to deal with. Um, going back to the 320, it's actually got a, a, a two kilohertz offset when using it on USB and LSB. So from the actual, you know, frequency it's actually working on. So you'll be, you know, two up from your actual frequency, and that's just something you got to know. <laughs> We're going to get some more secrets from Harlequin here in just a moment. Stay tuned to the Photon Podcast. Here's a message from our show sponsor, Main Trading Company. Visit mtcradio.com today. A great one-stop mom-and-pop shop. 
for everything ham radio. Radios, antennas, power supplies, wire and cable, books and training materials, microphones, headsets, and accessories. Find popular brands like MFJ, Heil Sound, Jetstream, LDG, Alinko, Comet, Texas Bugcatcher, Radio Waves, and more. MTCRadio.com, an authorized Kenwood and ICOM dealer. MTCRadio.com. All right, back on Photon Podcast, we got Harlequin. He's teaching us about, and I, I'm I'm actually captured by this. I'm real too bad I'm broken, have so many children. I probably have to have one of these Millsurf rigs. But uh, Harlequin, tell us about some of the portable gear setups that uh, you have, you've seen, you've used, and uh, share some of your knowledge with us about that. Um, sure. And so, in terms of the gear and like just generally operating. Um, you know, when you go out, you know, three mo- or three hours, you know, up the side of a mountain, you finally get up there, you know, you really generally, you know, want to talk to somebody, you know, you, you don't want to get up there and just call CQ and, you know, not talk to anybody. So, you know, planning and, you know, having the gear set up, you know, ready to go, I, I think is a big part of the hobby. So, mm-hmm. uh, one of the first things you want to do is let people you know, give give them a time to listen for you. So there's several uh, you know websites, HF Now, um, some, Soda. They they've got a whole system for for spotters and things like that. So where you can basically post a, a time and a frequency that you'll be operating around. And I think that's really something novice operators may not be aware of. But I mean, that's really how you you know try to at least have a couple of guys listening for you uh, when you get up there. You know, which I think is a big big help. Um, that would make in sense. Terms, yeah, I mean it's it's you know just something that's that's logical, but you know people often are just surprised that oh my god you can just randomly talk to somebody and it's usually because yeah well you know six hours ago I posted hey I'm going to be up here. <laughs> um, there's, there's actually a, there's a couple of different things. I mean you posted on I think DX spots. There's actually even a Twitter uh, Twitter channel for that kind of stuff. I never use that though because I don't use Twitter. But I've heard of it. Yeah. I mean, in terms of gear, it really depends kind of what I'm doing. You know, on a mountaintop, it really depends on the radio I'm taking, you know, and then sort of integration. I like using whips on mountaintops because, you know, it's usually windy, and I just want something that's really easy to set up, and it's just, you know, I can just prop the radio, you know, on a rock and, you know, just be on the air really quickly because I may not have a whole lot of time. So whip antennas, you know, they're not – the most efficient, but usually, you know, with most mill packs and 20, 30 watts power, you know, you'll get out well enough if, if the band conditions are good. So I prefer to use, like, you know, verticals for that sort of operating. Um, with my FT897, actually, I use a, uh, you know, well, it's basically half a buddy pole. It's, it's sort of the uh, uh, buddy whip concept, even though I use uh, the longer whips that they have for them. And then the coil. Uh, for just loading it near 50 ohms, and that gives you pretty decent performance on on the higher bands, though I can work down on 40 if I need to uh, with that setup. So, I mean, that's that's actually one of the reasons I really like that antenna system because it is is so versatile because usually, you know, I I got really tired of dragging up the whole, like, buddy pole to the mountaintop because the whole system's kind of bulky. And kind of, it's not too too heavy, but you know, if you're taking the tripod and you know the mast, it, it gets a bit heavy. Um, but it, it it's a great antenna for portable operation. Yeah, you know, I mean, and you can certainly backpack it, um, and it will give you way better performance, in my opinion. Um, you know, compared to whips, and you know, on a mountaintop when there's no trees here in you know Colorado, um, you know, which is most of the tall mountains. Uh, it works really, really quite well, and you can even use the whole thing. Uh, you can even set up a, you know, Yagi on 10 and 12 and, and 20 if you have, if you buy the additional components. So you can even have a directional antenna, you know, just ready to go. Though the setup time with that's uh, considerably longer. Uh, uh, it's, more, it's more work to get that done uh, in the whip, although the compromise you suffer there is is worth it for the expediency or. If you've got weather coming and you you know something's going to happen, 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's it's I mean, it's a Colorado thing mainly, but so typically the rule of thumb, you know, here is you want to be, you know, thinking about heading down, you know, from the mountain about noon because the you know showers start somewhere after about one o'clock in the in the high country, and you can have lightning, you know, it can be you know it can be kind of hairy, and so mm-hmm. that's one of the other advantages of the mill packs over the commercial solutions is you know the mill packs are actually you know waterproof. You know, as as opposed to, you know, a lot of the ham stuff, which you've got to, you know, actually for a long while I carried my FT817 in a giant plastic baggie. <laughs> well, but, that, that costs uh, a lot less than a pellet. That's a lot cheaper than a pelican case. That is a lot cheaper than a Pelican case, a lot lighter. Um, the the 817 is fairly durable as a little box, but, you know, it doesn't put out a, a, lot, a lot of power, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, I mean, to keep it waterproof, you know, that's kind of what I had to resort to because I got real paranoid about that, you know, because I, you know, one time I, you know, it was after I was packing down with the thing and, you know, I, I, I got to the car and I whipped it out and the radio was just soaked and I thought, oh, crap, it's died, you know, and, you know, it's it's not going to turn on. So I just, you know, carefully, you know, pulled out all the batteries and just, you know, let it dry out. And it was actually fine, but, you know, I, I was worried. <laughs> um, and the one thing I, you know, I, one thing I'd recommend to people is, I mean, really know your antenna and your antenna systems. Um, you know, and and it really depends on where you're operating. So for backpacking, I do stuff totally differently than I do mountain topping. For backpacking, I prefer to use uh, wire antennas, dipoles, and um, fed half waves. You know, all all the you know much more standard wire antennas because you know trees just. You know, if you got trees, you're good to go. You don't need anything fancy like a buddy pole. You know, it's not going to, it's actually going to be, you know, actually a disadvantage because you can throw, you know, a dipole up into, you know, a pair of trees and it's going to be a lot higher, you know, so that's going to give you a better radiation pattern, you know, than a, than a buddy pole. So um, the, uh, I think it's par NFEDs. That NFED Zep is actually a really great little, you know, backpacking antenna. That's actually probably what I carry most of the time for for casual use. And you can use the, all of these antennas with, you know, just a mill pack. You know, if you want to carry that or something lighter like an FT817 or an Icon 703 or KX3. So, you know, the antenna weight is kind of a big deal. You know, buddy pull the whole thing weighs. I I don't know. I've never actually weighed it, but probably over five pounds, you know, whereas, you know, an NFED ZEP, you know, could be maybe a pound, you know, of wire. So if you're going to be out in the backwoods for, you know, a few days, you know, four or five pounds, that's that's kind of a big deal. Is this something that uh, that folks who may not have mountains to go climb, uh, who may have uh, a nice park in the middle <laughs> of town, is that is this something that someone uh, who doesn't live in the the great state of Colorado uh, can do and it still still enjoy without having the uh, the summits and the mountains to be a part of their their experience this this portable packing of your radios with you uh, are there folks who do that Oh absolutely um you know actually uh I think a lot of the guys doing the uh, sort of pedestrian mobile, you know, when they're walking and talking with it on their back, um, a lot of those guys are, you know, I think mainly on much flatter terrain uh, than this. And some guys do it from the park or um, I heard one guy just, yeah, that's what he does. He just kind of walks around his neighborhood, (laughs) you know, with the radio (laughs) on his back. And, you know, that's great. Um, You know, the one thing, and uh, I think it was a, uh, there was a guy in uh, I think it was your second podcast. He he mentioned operating off of a picnic table and uh, having the cops called on him. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. So yeah, that's I mean it's you know it's it's one of those sort of dangers because people you know like like you said or the guy said you know people who don't know what's going on. But the sort of twist with mill tax is, I mean, it looks a whole lot more, you know, I don't know, aggressive or obviously military. So you might get some extra unwanted attention in that case. So right. maybe maybe something to be a little wary about. I've, I've mercifully never had the cops called on me for that. But, uh, you know, it's something, you know, you might want to be careful about. Right. Uh, 
Well, uh, tell us about – we've talked about your 897. You've mentioned you've had a uh, an 817 in the past. Uh, you've got some mill packs as well. Tell us about some of the gear that you have and uh, why you like some uh, for different aspects of the of the hobby versus the others. Um, sure. Uh, so, like like I said, I mean, the 897 I have is actually I, – I, it gets a moderate amount of use because it just – it's much more flexible than some of the other gear I have, it being all mode. I can do VHF on it, UHF, HF. So that gets a little bit more use um, than, than some of the other gear just for that reason. Um, and the 817, the main reason it gets used um, is mainly when I just need something super light because that 897 with batteries, it's weighing... I think something like 12, 13 pounds. So, I mean, it's not exactly super light, whereas a really minimalist setup with the 817, if I don't have it in its enclosure, you know, I can probably get it down under five pounds. With, uh, with the case that I have, which is an old PVS-5 uh, night vision goggle case, um, which actually worked really, really well for this project, um, when I put it together, you know, with the tuner, um, that weighs, I think, seven pounds with an extra, you know, external spare lithium battery for the, for the uh, pack. So, yeah, I mean, it's lightweight, so, I mean, I, I really like it. The only thing I don't like with the 817 is just the limited amount of power it puts out. So, for voice contacts, it's it's not the best choice, seeing as it'll top out at five watts. Um, and I, I, I'm generally a big proponent of, you know, using somewhere in the 20 ish watt range, you know, 15 to about 25 is, I think, the sweet spot, um, you know, just, just as a, you know, opinion. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I mean, there's the QRP Mafia guys, you know, five watts or bust. I mean, and that's great if condi band conditions are good. I've, I've certainly made plenty of contacts with the 817 and some of the mill packs in their sort of low power modes, but, you know, sometimes band conditions aren't great. So at that point, you just need more power. You know, I mean, it, it's that simple. And I mean, if you think about the five watts versus the uh, you know a twenty watt, I mean, that's uh, what is that three six like nine dB higher. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, so you're yeah. going to get hurt a whole lot better. You know, and I mean, there's just no substitute for power in some cases, or you know, maybe a directional antenna, you know, being the other sort of cure for that. Um, right. In terms of some of the other packs that I, you know, that are kind of floating out there, you've got the British, on the British side of the house, you've got the standard PRC-320. Those are somewhat available. Um, I've got a PRC-319. I wouldn't recommend that for casual ham use just because it's too hard to actually tune around. And maybe I should make a comment about this and most of the military radios. So these are all designed to be used on, like, one or two frequencies. You know, your, your frequency coordinator just gives you, here's the frequencies you're going to use, boys, and that's it. You know, you're not, yeah. you know, if you're in the military, you're not just tuning around yakking to people. So they're not particularly friendly. Some are better than others for just entering a frequency. Um, many designs will have like the sort of decade switches. The 320 has these dials that go from zero to nine. And so you can definitely tune around with that. I mean, it's not the, you know, nicest thing on your fingers sometimes, but the more modern the radios actually, and it's one of the reason that the seventies and eighties mill packs are kind of probably the sweet spot, um, in terms of operating, uh, once you get to really like the digital display stuff, often it's just like you have to program in a frequency or two or three frequencies. And so you're limited in that sense that, you know, you, you cannot tune around, you know. So, I mean, yeah, you can always just enter in another frequency that's up one or two, you know, whatever, you know, to talk to people. But, I mean, you're not going to scan through a band like that, you know, right. to find somebody to talk to. So that's the other reason for using, you know, here, I'm going to be on this frequency at this time, and that's that's more or less, you know, kind of what you have, especially with, like, the 319. It's got, a, like, nine memories, and that's it, you know. I mean, you, I mean I'm not going to tune around with that thing. I mean, you know, I'll have, like, the HF pack frequencies programmed into it, and, you know, I can use those, but if there's nobody listening, you know, and nobody's responding to my CQ calls, I mean, I can punch in one or two of the nets and try that, but failing that, I'm done. You know, I mean, I'm wow. not, you know, going to go looking for somebody to talk to on that radio. So, 
you know, that's something important to consider. And, you know, you see all the, you know, cool new radios like, uh, you know, PRC-138. It's, it's got the same thing. You've got to program in the frequencies. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's an important consideration with that. Um, probably the worst radio for that is uh, PRC-132, which was used by U.S. Special Forces in, like, the 90s. Cool radio, but from a ham standpoint, oh, my God. I mean, you... The, the, at least the like 319, it's got like a sort of push button, like a you know phone keyboard, you know one through right. nine. With the 132, you actually have to like, it's this like bizarre you know controller. You have to like click the knob over and you know select up and down, slew each individual you know like number up and down because there's no keyboard. So it takes like I don't even know like two minutes to enter like one frequency into the damn thing. Oh my. Yeah, I mean it. You know, I mean, you're not going to go tuning around with that radio. So, I mean, it's great for, for fixed frequency stuff. You know, it's got a bunch of memories, and you can just put them all in there. But, you know, if somebody's off frequency, you can't often, uh, you know, talk to them and, and, and whatnot. So it's it, it's a consideration. It's, you know, a consideration when you're, you know, looking at a man pack is don't just think, oh, how cool is this? I mean, think, like, how can I use this radio for ham ops? Uh, when, when we're when we're thinking about man pack mill syrup radios, do we need to think more vintage uh, for ease of use than, um, or at least it sounds this way to me, the older the rig, possibly the easier it is to use for the general ham radio operator here in America? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, like, I mentioned, like, the PRC-138, which is about as high-tech as you're going to get. This was actually you know, 90s-era rig, and they're, I think they're probably still used today in, in the military. Its successor is the PRC-150, so I don't know, you know, exactly how many are, you know, being fielded, you know, versus how many are, were surplus. I mean, these things were going, they're pretty rare on the ham market. When I saw them for sale, they were in excess of $5,000. So, wow. you know, why I'd love to have one, I, you know, can't afford, you know, the price of a used car for, for a radio. <laughs> Uh, I mean, but there's guys who can, you know, it's the same thing with like the, the contest rigs, right? I mean, that's, that's right in that price bracket. Um, yeah, yeah, the more modern the radios, I mean, it's interesting if you take a look at the history because, um, you know, really the first man packs came out in the sixties during the Vietnam war and, you know, they have limited functionality, you know, they were heavy and whatnot. And in the seventies and eighties, they really improved. Um, a lot of that functionality, a lot of the weight uh, came down. Um, a lot of stuff was standardized, power levels, all this sort of stuff. And then in the 90s, they basically said, well, okay, you know, we're okay with carrying a radio that weighs, you know, 15 to 20 pounds. Now, you know, let's just start adding features. Let's start adding stuff to it, you know, automatic link establishment, crypto, you know, and all these sort of additional features, which made the radios much more difficult you know, for for the average ham guy to use because you're not going to be able to use any of those features on the ham bands. I mean, ALE you can kind of use, but, you know, certainly not, you know, crypto or frequency hopping or any of that stuff. And, I mean, that's that's of no use to you. You know, yeah. it's illegal, you know, under the FCC rules. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's cool to, you know, maybe have or experiment with. But, um, and also for the, you know, same reason, most of the modern stuff, again, it's actually hard, probably harder to find, you know, parts for that stuff because it's so rare. Um, there was a guy who actually just bought a PRC-138 on, on one of the forums that I saw, knowing that it was missing one of the, like, one of the cards for, like, maybe the power power supply to the thing. And mm. so he bought it, good price, still still asking people, hey, anybody have these parts, these cards? And so occasionally you see radios that I'll see them. I see the same radio for sale, like, you know, once or twice a year, some guy will buy it thinking he can fix it. And you can't, you know, I mean, there's no parts. So that's not not a little investment either. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, I think you have to be sort of cognizant of, you know, repairing it. You know, don't ever buy a broken mill pack. I mean, that's, that's my number one piece of advice. Try to, you know, do your best to make sure it's working. Um, you know, but realistically in terms of repairability, you know, somewhere in the 70s and 80s, they still used a fair amount of discrete components instead of just being entirely, you know, VSLI architecture, you know, it's all ICs. 
you know, so you, you know, if you have a whatever, you know, a transistor that goes out on it or whatever, at least, you know, there's some possibility of fixing it versus, you know, if there's some IC that fries, forget about it. You know, you're not wow. you're not going to replace it, and you just need a whole new board, or you know, you just might as well write write the radio off. So then it becomes a part trick for someone else. Right, basically. So and I mean, those float around, you know, on eBay too. You know, I mean, some guys, you know, if it says uh, not tested. You know, half the time I think to myself, okay, so it's basically dead. You know, it's 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 four parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, parts only. Yep. Do you see these things at uh do you see these things at Hamfest or is it more just an online uh kind of a swapping uh, so kind of both. I mean you can find uh guys selling some of this older stuff uh, at you know various ham fests. I mean I'm always amazed by the random stuff I see at ham fests. So certainly I've seen um and even bought uh, mill packs at Hamfest, but it's also online. Um, there's a couple of online dealers that occasionally have stuff, and usually, you know, that's probably the safest way to go. Um, yeah, because you know they can test it, and at least you have some, you know, vague recourse to you know get your money back if it doesn't work. Um, but you know, there's also eBay, and often, you know, that, that's the whole deal with eBay. You'll find a better deal than at the dealer, you know, often. And the other thing is, right. you'll also find those those cool radios that you know nobody has, you know, often on eBay or you know places like that. So I mean, it's just kind of it is where you find it. So well, and, and we we uh, we warn a, a lot of folks to to stay away from eBay regarding ham radio purchases. <laughs> and, and when it comes to the mill syrup, hey, you need to go to eBay and find you a radio. So it, it's well, one I mean, of the. It's one of the safer, well, not safer, but it's one of the places that you'll find more of a variety, possibly. Yeah, it's definitely more of a variety. I mean, I, I really caution people, especially buying, you know, some of the older radios, and especially if it says not tested. Um, you know, I mean, you can occasionally people sell this stuff on QRZ as well. So, I mean, it, it just sort of pops up kind of everywhere. You know, if you can buy from, you know, a reputable, you know, ham guy, you know, do it, you know, versus, I mean, often what you see on eBay is actually um, estate sales. So some of the radios, you know, the the guy dies and, you know, they just start auctioning all, they, they send all his belongings to the auction company and these guys have no idea what it is. You know, maybe they did five minutes of research online, no idea if it works, you know, that kind of a thing. And none of the ancillaries are available for it, which in some cases are more important than the radio because, you know, it's not like, I mean, it, it's either that or, you know, you got to get the ancillaries with the radio, otherwise you're kind of SOL, you know, then right. some of it can be really impossible to find. I mean, uh, you know, some, some, some radios just use U.S. standard connectors, and, you know, that's fine for audio, you know, audio, but like um, antenna mounts and antenna bases, there's very little standardization there, so... You know, you might be, you know, homebrewing stuff or, you know, just trying to, you know, track this stuff down. And then when you do, you know, like that, like I told you about that PRC-174 mount, I mean, it's, you know, it's going to be like 100 bucks, 200 bucks just for, you know, a chunk of, you know, plastic. To hold the antenna on for you. Yeah. So, you know, it can be kind of crazy. I mean, I, there's, you just got to do your research on, you know, which parts are hard to find for which radios. Um, you know, in that sense, probably the, the PRC-104, you know, the U.S. Uh, man pack from, like, the late 70s, you know, through about the mid-90s, you know, accessories for that are usually findable. Or, you know, if you're looking at the U.K. radios, most of the Klansman gear, you know, currently, you, you can you can get them. You know, handsets and antennas are just widely available, you know, over there. You know, but, you know, uh, as an interesting counterpoint, so Raycall... Uh, radios, uh, which the British military generally didn't adopt, but are still good radios, um, like a Syncall 30 or something, good luck finding, you know, the Raycall 6-pin audio connector, you know, like audio accessories or any of the antennas for a lot of their man packs, you know, because you just can't find it. So you're going to be homebrewing. You know, I've got an H250 handset that's been, you know, thank God the audio impedances were the same. But, you know, you know, there was a guy who I got it from that, you know, had to homebrew the connector on there, you know. So, uh, you know, to work with the 6-pin uh, uh, Klansman, it's not a Klansman, Klansman 7-pin, 
But uh, so the Raypol connectors are different from the Klansman connectors, which are different from the U.S. military connectors. You know, and it, you know, each each company has one or two different like kind of lines of antennas as well. So you know, it can be kind wow. of a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, there's little standardization, you know, depending on. So you really the era you really have to do your homework. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's not something you can just decide you're going to do tomorrow. And, and buy everything and have it to your house by the by field day, and uh, yeah. get on the air with it. Uh, so, share with me in closing here some some resources for folks to use regarding uh, online forums or uh, uh, Yahoo groups or whatnot that 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 have this knowledge base that folks can go in and learn further if they're interested in man packing. Um, absolutely. So, um. Probably one of the best general resources, um, there's a guy, Mark Francis, uh, who also lives in Colorado, um, and he actually wrote two books on uh, you know, military radios in general, and uh, you can find that from Amazon and online. It's, uh, oh, Lord, what is it called? Uh, I'm trying to think. I actually have to look it up here for a sec. It's like Milpack Radios Volume 1 and 2, and the author's name is Mark Francis. Uh, K-I-P... No, that's not his call. I can't remember his call. Anyway... I'll uh, put so it in the show notes. How's that? Yeah, that's fine. Um, but so, yeah, Mark Francis' books are a great resource uh, for... I mean, he, he covers a fair amount of, like, the more common Milpacks in, in his books and some of these sort of quirky things. You know, he also has tips for building battery packs, and, you know, Lord, you could probably have a whole episode on that. Um, and also homebrewing potential adapters for these things. So that's a great resource. Um, I also really like the uh, Yahoo groups. So usually there's a Milpack Yahoo group, um, which is separate from HF Pack, which is another great resource for just general HF packing, and that's more geared toward, um, you know, just regular, you know, ham radios. The Millpack group are kind of collectors, but, you know, very knowledgeable about, you know, radios or maybe repairing radios. You know, that's the first place I would post if I had a broken radio. And uh, then actually there's the individual radios themselves will often have like a Yahoo subgroup. So if you go to, you know, there's a Klansman PRC320 subgroup, and it's mainly guys from the U.K., but they're very helpful, you know, in, in terms right. of uh, – you know, helping you out if you have any questions or problems or troubleshooting tips. There's a PRC-174 group. You know, so you can just usually, you know, put in the, you know, designation of the radio and then put Yahoo group after into Google, and it'll hopefully pull up, you know, a dedicated, you know, group of people, you know, that use that group. So, um, so yeah, those are the primary resources. And, I mean, I think in general, you know, that they'll, you know, are filled with helpful people. So Right. Yeah, in closing, uh, Harkland, anything else that you want to make sure that the listener gets regarding Manpack uh and the Millsurf radios before we let you go? Um, I mentioned batteries. Be prepared to build your own batteries. It's it's not you know, as daunting as one might think, you can easily do it out of most of them are using like twenty D cell NICAD packs which you can build. You can also substitute nickel metal hydride batteries in there, which are about the same weight with a higher power density. Um, you know, or alternatively, I actually these days use uh, lithium polymer batteries just for the huge yeah. amount of weight savings you can get with them. Yeah. Um, so talked about those in episode two, by the way. Yeah, no, actually, I think you guys were actually talking more about lithium iron phosphate batteries, which are yeah, different than yeah, the I'm sorry, you correct me. Yes, thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and the lithium polymers are even wider, but, um, well, you can go look on YouTube for spectacular failures, though. <laughs> I, I don't know, maybe, I, I don't really know. I mean, I, I know a few RC guys who claim they've they've seen some really impressive fires with those things, but um, you got to understand, I mean, usually they're pulling a lot, a lot of power through, you know, that stuff for yeah. uh, those operations versus, you know, ham radio is going to be pulling very little power, relatively speaking, very compared to the capacity. Right. Yeah, so, you know, I, I treat mine nicely, and I've I've never, you know, burned anything down with them. Well, so, cool. 
So it's a continuation of the hobby, and the hobby is, it's a builder's hobby. You you can go buy things, and they'll work right out of the box. But uh, some of the joy of ham radio is the fact that we're putting things together, working them ourselves. And uh, there, it's no different here for the man pack of the mill serpent. Yep, you gotta you gotta put in a little elbow grease. Generally, there's very little stuff that's just off the shelf, ready to go. And the reason I mentioned the clans from PRC 320, it's I think probably right now the most amenable to just startup operations because you can get it with a battery. You know, the, the packs are available. You know, and you might have to rebuild it at some point, but you can probably get on the air pretty quickly using one of those if you get the whole you know kit with all the ancillaries and and whatnot. All right, Harlan, thank you for your call, man. Thanks for being a part of the Photon Podcast. We're going to let you go with the three, uh, the 320 there. I've got a load of notes to take and uh, put them into the show notes, and we'll get the links from you. But I hope to have you back on again. We'll talk some more about man packing, and you can continue to drop the knowledge on us there, man. Thanks for your call. Yeah, sure. Hey, this is KJ4KPV. My name is Jesse. And what got me interested in ham radio was I read an article about how a guy was in the middle of a forest and he was climbing up a deer stand and he fell off of it. And when he landed on his back, he landed on a back of board that had uh, nails sticking up out of it and landed on his, uh, he landed right on top of those nails on his back uh, and, immobil- and immobilized him. So he whipped out his cell phone, and he had no signal whatsoever. So he got out his handy talkie. He was able to hit a repeater about uh, 20 miles away and uh, was able to get somebody to come in, and they triangulated on his position, and they were able to get him help. The second incident was when uh, there were, uh, a group of motorists were on one of the uh, highways up in Tennessee, and they were in the mountainous region of the Appalachians. One of them had a heart attack. It just so happened that the ham radio operator was able to transmit on HF. The other HF that received the SOS called the police in the local area and uh, went ahead and dispatched and was able to save the man's life. This is KJ4KPV73. That's going to wrap another episode of the Photon Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in, for downloading and subscribing. You guys are making this a lot of fun for me. My name is Kale, K4CDN. If you've got some suggestions you'd like to be on the program, let me know. You can find all of our information at AmateurRadio15.com. Remember, if you need some gear, MTCRadio.com, the official Photime podcast sponsor. Hey, don't forget, too, if you can't find it there, we've got it on the Photime Amazon affiliate store. You'll find the links under the shop tab on the AmateurRadio15.com website. Harlequin, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Guys, thank you for your calls as well. We're going to keep doing it as long as you guys are interested in listening, all right? God bless America, and happy birthday to these United States. God bless you guys. We'll catch you next time. 73. Thanks for downloading, listening, and subscribing to AmateurRadio15.com presents Bowtime, the other ham radio podcast. You can find our past episodes, web links, and more at AmateurRadio15.com. That's AmateurRadio15.com. Follow us on Twitter at Photon Podcast. And remember to visit our show sponsor, Main Trading Company, at MTCRadio.com. Till next time, 73s.